I am so thankful um, to be able to speak to you today. Uh, I was kind of wound up and uh, when uh, we started this morning, as the worship team was practicing, someone said, who gave him all that coffee? Because I was really cooking. I don't know where I left my cup. I think it's out in the lobby. It's probably a good thing. But honestly, it's not the coffee. It's just that I love the Word of God. I love this. I love how the Word of God speaks to us where we are when we need it. And the first time I saw that, there was a huge ministry that, I'm not going to mention it. This was 30 years ago, probably upwards of 30 anyway. This huge ministry that collapsed because uh, they found out that the guy in charge of it was uh, not who he said he was. That happens a lot these days, but that was really the first time I'd ever observed it. I was brand new in ministry. And, and I can remember um, that there was a group of people, they were the, those guys that cut trees, you know, and the, they had the green truck or the orange truck or something. And one of them came in and said, well, I know what you're preaching on this Sunday. You're probably preaching on that guy that, you know, they caught him doing the bad stuff, that preacher. And I said, no, I'm, you know, to be honest, I'm just in Galatians or Ephesians, wherever I was. But listen to what the passage was about. Be on your guard against false teachers. <laughs> and it, and it lent itself right into some people are around just for the money. And I'm like, wow, God, you just did that all on your own. I never had to mention a name. I never had to mention a current event or anything like that. Just preach the word of God. That's what happened this week as well. In fact, a number of you have said to me in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, you just see how germane, that is, how relevant these are to your life in this age. And uh, that's just God. There's no other explanation for it. And that makes me just really excited to talk to you about, uh, about what I want to talk to you about today. Um, I would encourage you ahead of time, if you would, to open your Bibles to Matthew 6. You can see on the screen it says Matthew 6. We're going to be looking at 25 through 34. Um, and there, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, there's an event, a live event for this that you can go to and you can follow along the scripture there. Matthew 6, starting at verse 25. We'll read that in just a few minutes here. First, I want to tell you about something I read, read uh, this week. Um, it made me chuckle. <laughs> it seems that there was this woman who was an all-pro warrior. That's kind of like me, I guess, right? She was just really good at worrying. And, and whatever her husband did, he could not get her to, to stop worrying. And she worried about everything. I mean, she worried about the economy. She worried about which shoes to wear. She worried about her job. She worried about the people that she worked with at her job. She worried about her boss. She worried about the people who were under her at work. She worried about her children. She worried about their children. She worried about the economy. She worried about everything, but the big thing that really, that she worried about the most that kind of drove her husband crazy was she worried about burglars. And so every night when they would lay down in bed, she would say, did you lock the door? Yes, honey, I locked the door. Did you check it before you came up? Yes, I always check it because I know you'll ask. Would you go check it again? Yes, honey. And so he would trudge out of bed and he'd go down and he'd rattle the door to make sure that it was locked. And of course, it was always locked. He'd go back up and he'd say, it's locked. Okay, there's been a lot of burglaries in our community and I'm kind of worried about that. I know you are, honey. I know you're worried. And then it also happened that in the middle of the night, he'd be sleeping soundly and he would hear, honey, honey, did you hear that? No, I didn't hear it. I think I heard something downstairs. Would, would you go check? It might be a burglar. And so sure enough, he'd get up out of bed. He would trudge through every room in the house because she's listening to make sure that he's going through every room. He'd come back upstairs and he would crawl in bed beside her and he would say, 
Honey, I checked every room. There's no burglar here. Okay, thank you. And this went on for a couple of decades. One night, as he was sleeping, he woke up because he heard a noise. She's soundly sleeping beside him. So he goes downstairs, quietly slipping out of bed to investigate. And guess what he found? A burglar. A real-life burglar in the flesh. A burglar. And he looked at him, and a burglar looked back at him, and he said calmly to him, hey, 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 I'm just really pleased to meet you. (laughs) He said, I wonder if you would do me a favor. Would you please come upstairs and meet my wife? She's been waiting for you for 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Worry, right? It's something that some of us are better at it than others. I tend to be pretty good at it myself. Jesus says in a kingdom that we don't really need to worry. In fact, he tells us not to worry. Now, you should have a communion cup with you, so you're going to come to the end of this service and take that moment of quietness before God to celebrate what he's done for you and to commune with him. And I would encourage you as you're listening to this message, do it with that same heart that talks to God about about worry this time, though. Is worry an issue that you have? It seems to me that in this this, uh, Sermon on the Mount, in this particular portion we're going to read, Jesus talks almost exclusively about worry. I mean, you're going to see it in verse 25. He begins saying, do not worry. And then in verse 34, he wraps it up saying, do not worry. And he even caps it off, which what I believe is the humor of the Christ, because I think Jesus had a lot of humor in what he said that we don't get today. I think that when he gets to the end and says, don't worry about tomorrow for each day has enough to worry about. He's like, I I think his tone is probably like, don't worry about tomorrow. Good night. Isn't there enough to worry about today? Right? He's capping it off, so to speak, because in this portion, he is talking about worry. Let's read it together. It's chapter six, starting at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and is not the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? (laughs) You of little faith. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, I love how this passage begins with the words, do not worry, and ends with the words, do not worry. And it's evident that Jesus is giving us reasons not to worry. And I'm going to talk about them in some pretty serious detail in a little bit. But first, I need to talk to you about hermeneutics. 
hermeneutics. You're like, I don't even know what that word means. Right, it's a $3 word. It might even be a $3.07 word, right? It is the word that explains or defines the study of biblical interpretation. So if someone comes up with some off-the-wall idea about what a passage means in a Bible study you're in, you might want to look at them and say, I think you need to check your hermeneutics, Jack. And then you'll look really smart because you have that word, right? Hermeneutics has to do with the way we understand or interpret the Bible. And it's an important thing. You'll see how it applies in a moment, but, but I want to just give you some examples of some bad hermeneutics. One example is ignoring the historical use of the words. And that doesn't just mean Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. It can even mean the English words. From what I understand, during World War II, there was a shortage of everything, particularly rubber tires. They were hard to find. Now, from what I've read, there were Christians who, seeing the shortage of rubber tires, began to proclaim, the Lord predicted this. He predicted there would be a shortage of rubber tires. It's in the Bible. And they pointed to the King James Version in Isaiah three eighteen. Let me read it to you. I just so happen to have it in my notes. Let me read it to you. In that day, the Lord will take away their bravery, the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls and their round tires like the moon. That's it. God's word is saying that when God's people are disobedient to them, he will take away their tires, and that's exactly what's happening here in World War II. It sounds like they got it right, right? Wrong. Wrong. You see, when the King James Version was published 300 years, 300 and some years previous to World War II, there was no such thing as Firestone or Goodyear. There were no rubber tires in 1611, let alone when Isaiah wrote those words. There were no rubber tires then, right? Couldn't have been the tires. That word tire in Elizabethan literature, King James language, it refers to an ornamental headband that a woman would wear if she were going to a ball or something like that. And what God is saying is, I'm going to take away, because you've been disobedient to me, to the people of Israel, he was saying, I'm going to take away all your luxuries, your gold, your ornaments, your earrings, even the things you wear around your head, those golden tires that you have, I'm taking them away. So the lesson we pull out of this is hermeneutics is worth looking at. It's good to know how words are used, and and it's good to know how grammar is used. I'll give you a couple shorter examples. Here's bad hermeneutics taking a Bible verse out of context, you know? Just taking that verse and saying, well, here we have this verse. It doesn't mean that at all. You've heard a phrase, I die daily, right? And people say, well, you know, we have to die to sin daily. Indeed, we do, but that's not what that verse is talking about. Paul's saying, I'm in danger of dying every day. And he talks about lions and and persecution, all the stuff he's facing. I die daily in the Bible doesn't mean dying to sin. It's true, we have to die to sin, and we should die to sin daily. But we're taking that verse out of context when we use it that way. It's bad hermeneutics. Here's another one. Numerology. Applying numerology to the Bible. I don't know if you remember a book called The Bible Code. I had friends, good friends, who loved that book. This guy took and he assigned numbers. There were numbers that were assigned to Hebrew letters and Greek letters of the scripture. And he came up with a New York Times bestseller, made a lot of money with it because of the numeric coincidences that are there. Those numeric coincidences are also in the works of Nostradamus, but that doesn't make Nostradamus being inspired by God, right? A numeric coincidence abound. Get yourself a Lincoln Kennedy penny. Do you remember those? It's amazing, the coincidences between them. Numerology, it's always 
It's always pointless to use that to learn what the Bible's saying. Bad hermeneutics. So now you get it. You understand. Okay, so that's what you mean when you, you mean hermeneutics. So what, Pastor Steve? I want to give you this rule of hermeneutics. Here it is. When you see a wherefore or a therefore, check to see what it's there for. If you're reading in the Bible and it says, therefore, do this, then you, you know, you're reading along and you're going, da 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 Therefore, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. What is that therefore doing there? And most of the time we look at, okay, what should we do? But we need to also consider what did he just say that caused him to come to the conclusion this is what we should do. And there's two of them in this passage. There's one in verse 25. It says, therefore, I tell you, right at the very start of this passage on worry, there's a therefore. And right at the very end in verse 34, there's one as well. Therefore, he says, do not, don't worry. He's laying that sort of thing out. Because of the things I just said, Jesus is saying, don't worry. And he gives good reasons not to worry. So I want to talk to you for the rest of the message about these two therefores and what comes before them. And I want to start with the second one first. We're going to start in verse 34, where he says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The therefore means... In light of everything I have just told you so far in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't need to worry. Well, what did you just tell me in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus? Because I'm kind of forgetting them. What were they? Well, one of the things that he just told us was that, actually, you know what? I just blew that really bad. I'm going to back up. This is the second one. Of the things I just told you here in this short passage, starting in verse 25 all the way to 34, don't worry. Well, what did you just tell me in those last 10 verses, Jesus? Well, first thing I told you is that the things you worry about can be pretty small unless you have them in proper perspective. I mean, look at the second half of verse 25. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? In the kingdom, we don't worry about food and the body. We don't stress about it. We don't fret about it. It's not that we're lazy. I mean, kingdom people, they, they do work so they can have food and clothing, but we don't stress about it. It's not that we're derelict, that we're like, yeah, I'm not worried about food and clothing. Someone else will provide that for me. No, we have a good work ethic. It's not that we're undisciplined and saying, well, I didn't pay my bills. No, <laughs> we're good stewards. And we take care of those things. But in the kingdom, we don't sweat the small things because we realize that most of those small things are really small in the grand scheme of things. In life, they're really small. And so Jesus says, don't worry. In verse 26, he says that God has your back. I think it was a year or two ago that I was standing in the grass in front of a school here in town and I was standing there as a young man was being put into a helicopter. He'd had an accident, and he was being life-flown to Altoona. He had life-threatening injuries. And when this helicopter was taking off, I stood with his grandparents, maybe some other family members, and I said, let's pray together. And so we prayed for that young man. He's doing well now. But we prayed for him at that moment. And as soon as I said, in Jesus' name, amen, and opened my eyes, I looked, and there was the grandma. And she said, God's got this. God's got this. She's right. That's what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Of course you are. Of course you are. You love your pets, right? 
I mean, when I was a kid, I had a German shepherd that was like maybe my best friend. Don't tell my other best friends that, my human ones. But we did everything together, and I loved that dog. We love our animals, and a father loves them too. Jesus says his father feeds them. But Jesus wants you to know that God values you even more, all the more. You are of great value to God, and you don't need to worry. He's got your back. Third, you can see that generally Jesus is saying worry is pointless. It's actually fruitless. In verse 27, he asks, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Nope. And we all laugh at the guy who, when he's confronted about his tendency to worry, he says, hey, my worrying is productive. 99% of the things I worry about never happen. (laughs) Yeah, well, it doesn't work the way you think it works, buddy, right? Therefore, Jesus says, stop worrying. But what about those other verses? What about the first therefore? Therefore, I tell you that as he begins to talk about worry, what was he telling us ahead of time that kind of fits with them? Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll drink, or what you'll wear. Is, is not life more than food and body more than clothes? So this, therefore, points to what Jesus has been saying before this section. It points all the way back to chapter 5 when he starts speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. When the scripture says he went up on a mountainside and sat down and began to teach them saying. That's what this therefore is pointing to. It points to the text that you and I have been working through for the past several weeks. And when you look at what he says here, you can see there are some really astounding reasons not to worry. Generally, (laughs) worry comes from looking at life backwards. You could say that worry comes from misunderstanding the nature of blessing in the kingdom. And remember, that's what Jesus says from the get-go. He says, you're looking at life backwards and you need to turn it around. And remember the illustration I gave you. When I'm using a screwdriver right in front of me, I know, lefty-loosey, righty-tighty, that's easy. But when I have to reach around, it gets a little confusing and I'm looking at it backwards. And I think a lot of us look at life backwards that way. And Jesus says, if you're caught in worry maybe you have been looking at life backwards. I mean, he begins this Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 5 with those Beatitudes, and they seem backwards. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I just don't get the Beatitudes, man. That doesn't make any sense to me. And what they're saying is, I don't get how if you're poor in spirit, you're blessed. That doesn't make any sense to me. And that's because they're looking at it backwards. If you're looking at life and you're thinking to yourself, Blessed are the self-righteous because their hard work is something God will honor and give them a place in heaven. Then you got it backwards because in the kingdom, it goes like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Maybe if you have it backwards, you're like, blessed are those who party hardy because this life is all you're going to get. But in the kingdom, it reads, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they'll be filled. Maybe outside of the kingdom, you would say, blessed are those who are assertive. You've got to get up there and stand up and stand up for your rights. You'll grab the whole earth if you can do that. The world is yours. But in the kingdom, it reads, blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth. Outside of the kingdom, blessed are those who don't give a whole lot of thought to being godly. That way they'll never feel guilty. But in the kingdom, it reads, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Well, blessed are those who can rouse the rabble, because there's nothing like seeing the rabble fly. Peace is way overrated. But in the kingdom it reads, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the children of God. Outside the kingdom, it's blessed are those who never face opposition for their faith. Their stress level is a little bit like heaven. But in the kingdom it reads, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, blessed are those that no one ever criticizes them about Jesus. Because it's just not good for you to take that kind of stress. Nope. In the kingdom it reads, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Look, if you're looking at life from the wrong side, and you look at the Beatitudes and say, those just don't make sense. Looking at it from the wrong side, no wonder you're worried. No wonder you're stressed out. You don't have to worry that way. When you look at it from the right side, it changes everything. Worry can come from misunderstanding of the nature of blessing in the kingdom. And worry can come from desiring honor from people instead of desiring it from God. It comes from wanting people to think you're cool and not really caring if God thinks you're cool. Jesus says in those verses prior to our passage today, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. If you derive your value from how people view you, your anxiety will be high. And if you make how people view you really, really important, your anxiety, the RPMs, will be up near the red line. You see, worry comes naturally when we concern ourselves with what others think of us instead of what God says about us. Worries come when we put our trust in others and their opinions instead of our trust in God and His truth about us. When you concern yourself with that, with God's grace, and seek His kingdom, You don't have to worry that way. I think Jesus is indicating that worry actually can come as we deprioritize the kingdom, as we make it less important in our life. Right in the Lord's Prayer, right after he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The next thing he says is, Your kingdom come. He talks about your kingdom come, your will be done, before he even talks about giving us our daily bread. Before he even talks about forgive us our trespasses. Before he even talks about lead us not into temptation. He says, your kingdom is a priority. It's a top priority in the Lord's Prayer. And I think for me and for you, worry comes when we give more attention to the kingdom of this world than we do the kingdom of heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermins destroy and thieves break in and steal. Do you have a retirement account? I had one. (laughs) something happened this pandemic happened and i watched my retirement go you know tanked right like what is that if i allow my eyes to be on that if i if i store up treasures on earth where the stock market can destroy it then i have great reason to worry but if my treasure is in heaven and that's my priority i don't have to worry that way Chances are you've heard those first things that we talked about that are contained in those 10 verses. But going back and looking at reprioritizing and rethinking your ideas of what it means to be blessed, that's not as common a thought 
And if you consistently struggle with worry and anxiety, that might be an area you need to spend some time focusing. Perhaps you can lower your anxiety by developing a kingdom perspective that Jesus has been talking about. Okay, let me say that sentence again, but this time correctly. Let's drop the word perhaps. You can lower your anxiety by developing the kingdom perspective that Jesus has been talking about. I say that because the kingdom perspective actually frees us from worry. It's a perspective that makes our anxiety get smaller. (laughs) And as you come to the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, you're going to hold the bread and the cup in your hand, and you can choose. You can say, I'm going to hang on to my worries, or I'm going to have a kingdom perspective so I can be set free from that. And the kingdom perspective is huge. It's giant. But I want to tell you three things that are essential in it. The first is this. The king gives you value. He values you. So when he says, look at the birds of the air, are you not more valuable than they? You know the answer, right? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I got to participate in a holy moment a number of years ago. Some of you remember Jim Mitchell. He was an elder in this church for a number of years. I loaded up Frank and Chuck in my car, and we headed down to see Jim in a nursing home at State College. When we got there, the two of them were visiting together. The three of them, rather, were visiting together. I was kind of a fifth wheel, um, but I loved watching them. They knew each other. uh, Mr. Mitchell and um, Frank knew each other since they were kids. And they're visiting and visiting. And then Mr. Mitchell looked at Chuck Kim, and he said, Chuck, I've heard you sing that song before. Would you sing it for me now? And Chuck sang, His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on a sparrow, and I know he watches me. And Jim Mitchell sang right with him, (laughs) right with him as he sang that. It's a holy moment. It's a moment where a gentleman who's in a nursing home facing the end of his life finds and recalls that he has value before God. And he can taste that value. You have it too. You know the verse, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, whatever it is that you value, I'm sorry, whatever it is that you love, you value that. And if God loves the world, then he values this world. And you're part of that world. So you could rephrase that to say, God so valued me that he gave his one and only Son so that if I trust him, I have eternal life. And I don't think that's a stretch at all. The kingdom perspective says you don't have to worry because God gives you value and he sees you as having value and he is jealous for you. He is jealous for you. Now the jealousy that God has is a different kind of jealousy than sinful jealousy. Let me explain it just briefly. God is jealous for you because he wants your love and your worship because he deserves it. It is the right thing for him to have it. He is the one who made you. So if you worship something else, when you could be worshiping him, that's a problem. He is the one who was slain, and with his blood, Jesus purchased persons from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Worshiping anyone else or anything else would be shameful. And so he is rightly jealous, saying, I demand your worship. 
I demand your love. I demand that you be my people. It's just like a husband who would be rightfully jealous if someone else flirted with his wife because that person doesn't have the right to do that. I have the right to flirt with her, but you don't. Back off. That's the way God is with you. He says, you are my own, and I want your worship. I want you to be my people. I want you to be transformed. I'm going to be able to hold you up and say, this is the apple of my eye. This is who I love. You know, if things go south in a country, we generally blame the leadership. In biblical times, that would be the king. Even in the NFL, with the exception of the Cincinnati Bengals, every NFL team knows that if you have a coach that's not making it for you, it's time to change them. The Bengals held on to theirs for a couple decades of losing one game after another, right? But we know that the behavior of the group or the behavior of the people or the behavior of the team is a reflection on the leadership of that team. Jesus is saying that your state, who you are, how you are, is a reflection on the very nature of God. And in the kingdom of God, he wants to win. He knows that it's all about his name, and he will win. Think of the 23rd Psalm for a moment. The 23rd Psalm says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. What's the next phrase? Somebody give it to me. For his name's sake. Yeah. So why does God lead you, make you lie down in green pastures? Why does he lead you beside quiet waters? Why does he restore your soul? Because his name is on the line. And he is jealous to make sure that his name, that his name is not corrupted. The kingdom perspective says, the things that I want to worry about in my life that I'm afraid are going to destroy my life, the king is even more worried about that. He's jealous for that kind of thing, and he's going to take care of that. That's the kingdom perspective. And it frees us from worry. We can find worry because the king gives us value. We can find worry because the king is jealous for us. We can find worry simply, I'm sorry, we can find freedom from those things. Let me start that again. We can find freedom from worry because the king gives us value, because the king is jealous for us, and because the king is the king. Because the king is the king, he changes our perspective on what's really worth worrying about. He knows what you need. He cares for the things you care for. He's able to manage whatever needs to be managed in your life better than you could ever hope to manage it. It's because he's the king. You know, for most of us, when we're younger... (laughs) We feel like we can take whatever challenges life throws at us. You know, when you're out of high school, maybe you got a job and got a pickup truck or whatever. Or maybe you're getting college, you're going to graduate, you're doing really well, and you're like ready to embrace life. And you have this kind of, kind of sense of, and here's the word I'm going to use, self-sufficiency. We all have it. I can do this. I'm self-sufficient. I'm ready to start living my life. And then when children come along, that gets eroded a little bit, right? And you're like, oh, this is a little bit harder than I thought it would be. I'm not quite as self-sufficient as I once was, and those of you that have young children are kind of nodding. Let me just tell you, when teens come along, that self-sufficiency really gets diminished, right? It's like, wow, I don't think I can do this by myself. I'm going to need some help from God on this. If you have, listen to this, and I'm speaking from personal experience. If you have children living in a foreign land in the midst of a global pandemic, you realize that your thoughts of self-sufficiency were a patent lie. They were pure fiction an absolute myth. 
I cannot tell you the number of times my wife and I, who are so thankful our children are where they are, overseas, doing what God has called them to do. And when I tell you my kids are living the dream, they are living their dream. I do not want them not to do this. But I would be lying to you if I told you, and and we don't worry at all about them. Laurel and I have experienced seasons of worry, and finally, and it was during a pandemic for me, finally I got to the point where I said, I don't have any control of this at all. I can do nothing to fix this, nothing to protect them, nothing to help them. It's a good thing the king is the king. It's a good thing that the king is the king. And that's really what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see what the therefores are there for. And they are there for to tell you that you don't have to worry because the king is the king. If you're on the outside of the kingdom, yeah, worry is exactly what you should be doing. But if you're in the kingdom, the king is the king. And if you're outside the kingdom, why not come to the king? Because he would welcome you with open arms. He would say, yes, please come. I died for you so that you could be forgiven. And I want to be your king. And I want to provide for you so that you don't have to worry. I want you to turn away from your self-righteousness and trust in Christ's righteousness to pray for, to, to cover your sins. And I want you to follow me, the king. And when you do that, you don't have to worry because the king is the king. The musicians are going to come and we're going to celebrate communion. And as we do, I want you to give your worries to the king. I want you to own the line I don't have to worry because the king is the king. I want you to, as you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, remember how he values you, that that bread represents his life placed on a cross on your behalf, willingly. I want you to consider his jealousy for you, that he wants you to thrive and prosper and be blessed as the kingdom measures blessedness because his name is on the line and you can trust him. And I want you to exchange your worry for worship. You don't have to worry because the king is the king. I want to take a couple minutes and afford you the opportunity to do that and then we'll take the bread. So if you would, let's just bow our hearts together in quietness before God. Um, and if uh, one of the musicians would play something that would be reflective. So Jesus, we have these worries, and with some of us, we're experts at it. Did you lock that door? Can you go double check it, please? We resonate with some of that thinking. We don't want to be that person. We want to be free from this worry. And we know just the idea, don't worry, God's got it, that that seems trite, but often the reason things seem trite are because they're so true. We know that the bottom line is we don't have to worry because the king is the king. And you, King Jesus, you value us. We give you our worries and we trust you because of who you are. In your name we pray, amen.
So you should have a communion portion in front of you, and I would ask you, if you would, to take the bread by peeling off the thin layer on top. First time I ever held one of these in my hand, I thought I was going to be eating styrofoam. Hmm. Did you feel that way? Isn't it just amazing, though, what this really represents? Think about that for a moment. Think about who this really represents. It represents the king. I'm going to ask uh, Josh, you have the microphone? I'm going to ask Josh if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the bread. And uh, then we'll take it together. And Josh, when you're finished, would you give the microphone to Steve behind you? Steve, I'm going to ask you to pray for the cup in a few minutes. Okay, buddy? All right. So Josh, would you please thank God for his body? God, it's overwhelming to think the price you paid for, for me, for us for all of humanity. We use words like awesome and amazing for very stupid reasons like cheeseburgers and pizza. (laughs) There's not a word in our language to describe it, God. That's the truth. We thank you, God, that you did this. We thank you that that you saved us. God, we thank you for this gift. We thank you for this time of reflection, this time of remembrance. The joy that we feel in our hearts right now, God, may we hang on to that with white knuckles as we move forward with you and through you. Amen. The body of Christ. For this moment together, we think of the blood, the shed blood of Jesus. We come to understand that because of that, we need not worry. Because of the the blood of Christ, because of the love that is represented here, because of the hope and the joy that can come, all of that brings us to the place where you would obliterate the tendencies and the patterns we have of worry. And so we come to the blood of Christ and we hold our hands high and we love you and we have hope, a resurrected hope of joy and great love. Thank you, Jesus, for all of that. Amen. I was thinking uh, about anxiety. I was thinking about worry. Thank you, Steve, for praying. I was thinking about those two things, and I thought, you know, I understand that clinically, sometimes you need meds for that. I'm not telling anybody to go off their meds. Got that? But I would say this. As Steve was praying for the blood of Christ, thanking him for it, I thought of something I thought in the earlier service when Josh prayed. That the scripture says it's by Jesus' wounds that we're healed, by his stripes that we're healed. And I would ask you, as you're taking this cup, if you feel that you are plagued by anxiety, plague is a malady, it's a sickness, right? If you feel plagued by anxiety, then in the silence of your heart, say, Lord Jesus, heal me from this. Heal me. The blood of Christ. Christ.